Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Mark 12:28-34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, "Which commandment is the most important of all?" Jesus answered, "The most important is, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this: You shall love your neighbor as yourself." There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there was no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, If we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here, and it's really good to have you this morning. We have been through some wild, hard, crazy stuff on Sundays, haven't we? Like two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus's vision of politics, which wasn't offensive to anybody in the room. And uh, then last week, we talked about the safety and the beauty of authority and our need as humans to submit to God. And I know that the word submit is like your favorite word ever. You've got a whole art piece in your house that says submit, you know, because that's not offensive culturally. So today, it's kind of nice to come up for air. We're talking about love. Who can get mad at me for that, right? We're talking about love today. And this isn't because it's Valentine's Day weekend. We are not that creative at planning. Uh, It just happens to be the section of Mark that we're in. So enjoy it, because next week, we're going to be talking about hypocrisy. And and then if that's not offensive enough, the two weeks after that, we're going to take two weeks and talk about uh, Jesus's real teachings on the end times, which I promise you is probably not what 90% of you think it is. So just get ready to be disrupted and have your whole vision kind of exploded by Jesus. So uh, enjoy today. Enjoy today. Today's love. We're going to enjoy that. So if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 12 is where we're at. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the words up on the screen, but would love for you to kind of jump in with us. So Mark 12, let me take a second and pray. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to gather and to remember and rehearse our real identity in you and our real story, that when we were dead, you loved us and you made us alive. And today, God, we pray both as we talk about love that you would enable us to love you from a pure heart, to love you in the ways that you want us to love you, but also, God, we pray that you would actually deposit your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And I can't do that. There's no, there's no preacher on earth that can do that. You have to do that, Holy Spirit. So we just pray. We invite you. We love your work. We love the ways that you want to move. So come and move in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this game that uh, chefs play often 
or diehard foodies play a lot. And it's this game of like, if today was your last day on earth, what would be your final meal? And I love this because I love food. Like, this is a hard one for me. I would have multiple options on the table for my final meal. But recently there was a a cookbook released, and you can get this on Amazon. It sounds amazing. I don't own it. I wish I did. Uh, It's called My Last Supper. And this editor found 50 of the world's best chefs and got them together and basically said, like, go ahead and give us your last meal and the recipe for it, which I think is such a cool idea for a cookbook. Like, if you only had one more shot to eat one more final meal, what would it be? So these world-renowned chefs are crafting their last supper, their final meal, And the reason why I think we, as people, love these types of questions is is because they're clarifying, aren't they? I mean, we all have things out there that we like, and then you've got some food items out there that you really like, and then there's just others that you're like, oh man, it's payday, we're we're doing it. This is what we're eating tonight, you know? And you've figured out, like, this is your your favorite meal to have. It's clarifying. Uh, Here's a slightly more morbid exercise that I want you to do with me. Imagine your house is on fire. And you can safely make it out, but the flames are raging. And let's just assume that, like, of course, if you have kids, you're going to get your kids out. If you have a pet or five, you're going to get your pets out. But beyond that, what do you take? What do you grab? Is it like a a family heirloom? Is it a stack of letters? I mean, what is it that you grab as you're running out of your house to survive? And here's why that matters, because it tells you what you value most. It tells you what's near and dear to your heart. Probably most things in your house you like. Probably most things in your house you'd be sad to lose in a fire. Some of you like, praise be to God, I don't have to do spring cleaning anymore. My house caught on fire. That solved the problem for us. Uh, but, but for a lot of us, it's like there's certain things that we would grab on our way out if we could because it's, it's near and dear to our heart. Those types of questions are really similar to what Jesus is getting asked today by a religious leader. Hey, it's not about food. It's not about a fire, but it's like, hey, Jesus, out of all the things in the law that God told us, what's the most important? What's the most near and dear to your heart? Now, before we dig in and kind of unpack the passage and work our way through it, I want to point out something briefly about this religious leader because he is unique as opposed to all the other religious leaders that we've seen in the entire story of Mark's gospel up to this point. Up to this point, all the religious leaders have been approaching Jesus not from a pure heart. They've had motives. Their motives are to trap Jesus. In fact, in this story alone, it's still Tuesday of Holy Week, the last day of Jesus's, or the last week of Jesus's earthly life. He's gonna go to a cross on Friday. And on Tuesday, he's had seven different interactions with religious leaders. And all of them, but this one, have been very, very negative. They've been them trying, they're trying to trap Jesus, have him say something wrong, get him to, to, to trip up over his words so that if he says something wrong, they can at least worst case scenario, arrest him. But best case scenario, they can hand him over to the Romans and have him executed for blasphemy. And that's exactly what happens on Friday. They actually hand over Jesus to the Romans to get executed. So here's the point. All the religious leaders up to this point, they're not interested in what the truth is. They're not interested in what Jesus is actually having to say. They're only interested in their position and making him look stupid. Except for this guy. This guy that we see is different. And there's some things that I think that we as a culture need to learn from him before we even get into the actual sermon. So look at verse 28. I want you to notice something about this. And one of the scribes came up and he heard them disputing with one another. 
He heard them, as in he heard Jesus, and he heard the Sadducees debating and disputing. Now look at what he says. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Josh Curry pointed this out to me this week, and I thought, man, that is so helpful. Here are two things about this guy that we need to learn from. First, he's curious. He's not closed off. He actually is listening to what Jesus has to say, and he's weighing it, and he's curious. He's humble. He's teachable, and he's not closed off. He's not approaching Jesus with his own perspective. He's not approaching Jesus with his own motives. He's actually approaching Jesus from a genuine heart, like what, what do you have to say about this? And I just think that you and I could learn from this when it comes to both our interactions with God and his word, but even interactions with other humans. We need more humility and we need more curiosity and we certainly need more teachability as a culture. As my mom would say growing up, God gave you two ears and one mouth that should tell, tell you something, right? He wants you to listen more than you talk. And I just wanna say as a pastor, hey, could we read more and tweet less, Right? <laughs> Could we scroll less and flip more Bible pages? Could we do more listening and less talking? And when we're interacting with other people, could we be more humble and more teachable and more curious? There's something about the scribe that you and I can learn from. Now, to quote from G.K. Chesterton, I'm not saying that we should have such an open mind that our brains fall out. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying, though, that we've lost the art of being humble and being teachable as a culture, and you and I need to recover that. The second thing about this scribe that's interesting is that he's responsible, not tribal. He's responsible, not tribal. He's a scribe, so he's a part of a group, and that's a good thing. It's good to have groups. It's good to be in community, but he doesn't allow his group to have their groupthink dominate his own response to Jesus. We all have groups. We have political groups. We've got church groups, theology groups, friend groups, family groups. That, that's not a bad thing. But don't allow whatever group you're a part of to group thank you to death because at the end of the day, you're responsible for God for how you respond and whether or not you seek the truth and whether or not you actually stand in awe of God and fear of God. You're responsible. And not, none of us get to stand before God and point the finger at our spouse or our family or our group or our church or a political party as an excuse for why we didn't do what God actually told us to do. You're responsible, so be more responsible and less tribal, more humble and more teachable. That's just on the surface of the story before we get in. So with that in mind, let's jump in and work our way through this story because I think it's really, really helpful. Again, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, Jesus and the Sadducees, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Let me give you some context here. The scribes, if, if you're not sure who that group was, they're uh, very prominent religious leaders by the time that Jesus arrived on the scene in the first century. And think of them like one part theologian, one part lawyer. So there's all these commands in scripture and the, the scribes, their role was to become experts in the law of God, what each law meant and what it meant to apply the law and how it meant to, uh, to live underneath the law of God. And so these scribes, that's what they're seeking to do. And you can understand his question of like, which is most important? Because when I say there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, I'm not saying that there's like, you know, like 15 or 20 or 50. There's 613 laws. And they're divided into two categories. You've got some that are negative. There's 360 of those. And by negative, I don't mean that they're bad. I mean, it's like, don't do this. 
don't live like this, don't do that, right? They're negative. So 365 negative laws, and then the other are positive laws. There are 248 of those, and that's do this, live this way, and engage in the world this way, right? And so he's coming to Jesus, and he's saying, there's a lot of laws. What's the most important commandment? Out of all those, like if I handed you a list of 613 things that I really want you to keep in mind, you'd probably be like, all right, got it, but is there like one that's central, one that is the most important? This is the question, and there are a lot of debates among the scribes and among rabbis leading up to the time of Jesus about this, and all different rabbis would give their own response to what they felt like was the most, com- most important commandment. So this scribe, he, he does not have a double motive. He's not trying to trap Jesus. For once, he's genuine. He's saying, Jesus, you're, you seem to be answering these Sadducees really well, What's most important? What's the most near and dear command for you? And, 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 and another way to ask the question, because in the Greek, it's a little bit more clear. It's, it's not like, what's the most important commandment? It's like, is there a commandment that summarizes the heart behind all other commandments? Is there something that distills it all down to one thing that it's like, if you do this, that's really in line with the heart of God? Now, notice what Jesus says in response. Verse 29. And Jesus answered, well, who cares because the law is stupid? No, he didn't say that. What does he say? The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Rather than dismissing the question as dumb or stupid, he actually holds a high value of the law. In other words, Jesus sees the law as a good thing. He he said himself he didn't come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill it. He says that if someone relaxes even the least of these commandments, that they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' vision of the law is good, and his response is, here's the summary of the law. Here's the most important commandment. And this has been known throughout church history as the great commandment. So four observations that I want to make with you about this passage. Here's the first one. The great commandment begins with grace. It actually begins with grace. I love what Jesus does here. He quotes from something called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, which means to hear. And the Shema is like the Jewish version of the Lord's Prayer for Christians. They would pray it every morning and every night. And in Deuteronomy 6, it basically says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it was this this stance of saying, God alone, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is the only God. He is the ultimate authority. There, There are no other deities or gods that are above or beyond him, that he is the God above every single God. So, worship him and love him alone. That's what this Shema is. It's the stance about God. And remember, this is a polytheistic culture at the time. Every nation had a multiplicity of gods. And yet here, the people of Israel are standing unique saying, God alone is the ultimate authoritative God. But there's more to the story. If you remember where Deuteronomy 6 lands, what's happening in the story up to this point is that God had chosen the people of Israel to be his special people. 
that when they were uninterested in him, he came to this pagan guy named Abraham, Abram, and then changed his name to Abraham, and he blesses them, and he makes them into a great nation. Then they wind up as slaves in Egypt, and he's redeeming them out of slavery. He leads them across out of the desert. He's promising them to, to, to lead them into the promised land. This is a God who is not just some generic deity out there, not just some God that we don't know. This is a God who has first deeply loved his people. And now what he's saying is, hey, here's how I want you to respond. Our love for God is a response to his love for us. He's not staring at you saying, love me. He's saying, I have loved you. I have pursued you. I have sought after you. And I don't want my relationship with you just to be based on laws and rules. At the core, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Jesus adds the fourth one, with all your mind. This is an invitation for us to answer back God and his great love that he had for us. So as Frederick Dale Bruner says, we serve a God with an address. It's not just deity out there somewhere floating in the world. It's God who came for us in Jesus. And the God that we're called to love is the God who has loved and pursued and chosen us when we wanted nothing to do with him. It's easy to love that God, isn't it? It begins with grace. That's the first thing I want you to see. Here's the second. The great commandment calls for whole person worship. Verse 30, Jesus says these words. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In Greek, it's from your heart, from the essence of, from your mind, from your soul, from your strength. So with all that you are, here's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us a vision for whole person, whole self, holistic love of God. This is beautiful because God is complex and he's beautiful and he's big. And so he's worthy of this type of love that isn't just one-dimensional, but there's actually multiple dimensions to who God is, so therefore our love for him should match that reality. Because God is relational, you and I are called to love him with our heart. This is really getting at the affections, your desires, your devotion, your delight, your emotional center. Jesus is saying, love me with the core emotional center of who you are your delight, your affections. Because God is the end for which we, we were created, you and I are called to love him with our soul. Here, here's what I mean. Humans don't make sense apart from God. It's like a car without gasoline or a fish without water. Humans don't make sense apart from God. He was the point. He was the end. He is why we exist. He's the, the, the thing that you and I are deeply after, whether we acknowledge that or not. So love him with your soul. This is describing your depths of being your core essence, the place that you find your ultimate sense of meaning and identity and purpose. Love the Lord your God from that place. He is the point of you. Love him with your soul. Because God is true, you and I should love him with our mind. This is describing our rationality, our concern for truth, thinking, learning, intelligence, comprehension. Love him with your mind, right? With the thoughts that you think about him. Because God is holy and he cares deeply about our actions, you and I are called to love him with our strength. This is describing your actions, your habits, your holiness, your efforts. 
your good works, your behaviors, your hands and your feet, what you do with your body, like love him with your strength, your physical strength, because he cares deeply about our actions. Now, as I said already, this is describing whole self, whole person, holistic love for God. Here's the problem, though. The problem is that both as individual Christians and as uh, church traditions, we tend to gravitate and disintegrate and separate into one of the, of the four, maybe if we're lucky too. But we often neglect three at least, maybe two, of these four different ways of loving God. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The charismatic tradition, they emphasize the heart. So there's a lot of emphasis in the charismatic tradition of, hey, love God with your emotions, with your affections, your passions. Jesus is alive. You should act like it. Love him with your heart. And I want to say yes and amen. That is really, really good. But what's often neglected in the charismatic tradition is a neglect of the mind. In fact, I remember when I was first like learning about the Holy Spirit, I grew up in a church context that never talked about the Holy Spirit. It was like Father, Son, Holy Bible, and I didn't know that the Spirit was, was a thing. And, uh, and so growing up and learning about the Holy Spirit, I remember one of my more charismatic friends, uh, he said, man, hey, be real careful. Be real careful because the more you learn and the more theology that you get into your head, the more your passion's gonna decrease. And that's kind of the idea, right? It's like, you know, to be excited, you gotta be dumb. And if you're gonna, you can't actually love doctrine and love theology and have a heart that's on fire for God. And, and, and this is, I just wanna say, that's, that's a really unhelpful approach because we're called to love God, yes, with our heart, but also with our mind. That God actually cares about the thoughts that we think of him. If I call my wife throughout the week and I say, oh, I love you so much, I miss you. I'm thinking about how beautiful your green eyes are and your blonde hair. She's gonna be like, hey, dummy, I've got blue eyes and brown hair. And I, I appreciate the sentiment, but you should learn a little bit about me as your wife. And, and I think sometimes that's how we relate to God. We're like, God, we love you. And we're saying all these stupid things that are not true. And actually, the more you learn and the more you grow, the more your heart can be on fire for God. Amen? Amen. So that's the charismatic tradition. Not always, but often emphasizes the heart to the detriment of the mind. The reformed or Bible-focused tradition often emphasizes the mind, which is really good. They talk about the importance of doctrine and theology and loving God with good thoughts. And if you go to their houses, they've got lots of books and lots of bookshelves. And that's really important. We should do that. But what often happens is that in this tradition, there can be some dryness. There can be some brittleness. There can be like a lot of thoughts about God that are real and good and beautiful and true. But it's like that person hasn't cracked a smile in 15 years, you know? <laughs> And I just want to say, it's actually good to have good thoughts about God, but the thoughts that you have about God, especially if they're true, should make your heart skip a beat every now and then. They should delight you a little bit, right? So now's the part of the sermon where I get to like lovingly poke fun at some of you. You ready? Uh, so if you're a follower of Jesus, this is directed at you, if it's true. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're off the hook on this one. But I... I laugh so hard on, laugh so I don't cry on Sundays when we'll be like having a confession of sin. It's like this beautiful moment. We're like, God, we've rebelled against you. We've done things that you told us not to do. We've sinned and thought word and deed by what we have done and what we haven't done. And, and we're in desperate need of your mercy and in your grace. 
And then we don't stop there. Then there's this assurance that's shouted out over us. When you were dead, he made you alive. He took you out of death and brought you into life. And you're forgiven. And the truest thing about you is not what you did last week. It's the death of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. And then ready for our response? Thanks be to God. (laughs) What? Are you kidding me? Thanks be to God. Like if we understood what we just read, we'd be jumping up on our chairs, right? So just to make sure like you guys physically can do this, raise your hands for me, everybody, everyone in the room, raise them up so you can do it. Amazing. I didn't know that you could do that. You should consider doing that while we sing true songs about God. Because I guarantee you tonight, whether you give one lick about football or not, you're going to be excited because you're going to be with friends and family. And at some point tonight, something that you care about will come up in conversation and you're going to physically act like you're excited. We should do the same about Jesus because his bones aren't in some grave in Palestine. He is alive. We're actually talking about stuff that's real, right? So let's love him with our mind, but also with our heart. Amen? Okay, slowed down spirituality tradition tends to emphasize the soul, which is really good. The importance of slowing down for loving communion with God. You're going to hear a lot about Sabbath and silence and solitude and some of those more introspective spiritual practices that have often been neglected by a lot of people in the modern church today. And that's really, really important. But, friends, let's remember that God gave us things like the Sabbath so that we would work hard for six days. You don't work hard for six days so that you can earn Sabbath. He gives you Sabbath as a gift so that you can work hard six days. Silence and solitude and alone time and and slowing down for loving communion with God is not meant to just end there. It's meant to actually drive you towards loving action towards God and towards neighbor. And if it doesn't do that, then it's not truly loving communion with God. So often slow down spirituality tradition focuses in on some helpful things but misses out on strength, loving God with our strength. And that leads me to the last one, which is the biblical justice tradition. They tend to emphasize the strength. Doing things for God, good works, caring for the poor, doing things that are more in line with God's heart and seeing the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want to say yes and amen to that. But if you neglect the soul and slowing down for loving communion with God, then what's going to happen over time is you're going to become brittle and fragile, and you won't have any sort of spiritual tank that's full to actually carry out all the things that God has called you to do. And then what will happen is you'll become really judgmental of all the people that don't take things as seriously as you do, right? So this is Jesus saying, hey, love God from a holistic standpoint, Because you're not just cordoned off sections of a person where you get to pick, ooh, I really like the mind, or ooh, I really prefer the heart. This is the way that God is calling us to love him. So I just want to ask you, is there one or two or three of these that you're neglecting and maybe more comfortable living in one of them but avoiding the others? Are there doors that are shut to God and your love heart? And what he's wanting to do is actually bust that door open and say, love me with everything that you are. An integrated, whole person. That's Jesus' vision for love. That leads me to the third thing that I want you to see. The great commandment actually leads to love for neighbor. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I love that Jesus does this. How many questions did the scribe ask him? One question about how many commandments? One commandment. Hey, what's the greatest? 
What's the most important? Is there one that summarizes everything? And Jesus refuses to be put in a box. He, he, he doesn't say, yeah, just love God. And if you do that, you got it. He goes, oh, and by the way, the second commandment that you should know about is love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting from Leviticus 18, 19, which I know is everybody's favorite book of the Bible. And when he says this, he's saying, love people and treat people the way that you want to be treated. And what's fascinating about this is that in Jesus's mind, you cannot truly have a person who loves God with their whole heart and mind and soul and strength when it doesn't also lead to love for neighbor. You can't. It's impossible to love God and not also love neighbor. Now, don't confuse it. Loving neighbor is not the same thing as loving God. They're two separate things. Loving God will lead to loving neighbor, though, and that is the point. You cannot pull those apart. This became really apparent to me uh, several years back. I was a uh, uh, theological intern for Dr. Sam Storms. He brought us in to do some training on theology years and years ago, and I was a college dropout and didn't know anything, and so he was helping me learn. And he took us to this, this thing called the Evangelical Theological Society, right? I feel like I need glasses to push up on my face when I say it. And I don't think I've ever been in a more nerdy place in my entire life. I mean, it's like there, someone had a nerd crank out there. It's like dudes in suits and leather satchels, like just busting them out. And they're all walking around with giant books. And here's, if you're like, what is the Evangelical Theological Society? Here's what it is. People literally fly all over the world for really smart people to read aloud doctrinal papers that they've written. And you just sit in the room and listen to them. And I loved every minute of it. It was amazing. And I remember going to this one guy's session. He authored, he'd authored many, many books. I'm not going to say his name because you would know who it is. And he was like a hero of my faith. Like he had shaped a lot of my theology. I love this guy. Like talk about a guy who loves God this guy. He's written books about loving God. Like, he loves God. And we're sitting there in a session about the gospel. And at one point in a session, he stops and he points to a guy and very angrily begins to yell and go off on this guy. And he says, how dare you? And I'm like, did someone like set a demon loose in this room? And he's like yelling at the demon. No, he was yelling at a camera guy that was in the room just filming the guy's lecture so that they could put it up on the website And he begins to berate this camera guy, just yelling, how dare you, young man? I am up here preaching the gospel. This is so important, blah, blah, blah. And anyone with a heart just begin to like, oh, slump back in our chair. How awful. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about love for God. But the way that he treated our neighbor in that moment was so, so sad. Jesus is trying to get us to avoid that. There is a way that you can talk about love for God, but if it doesn't show up in love for neighbor, it maybe isn't really there. In fact, it's not because 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So Jesus is connecting these two things for us. Now, this leads to the obvious question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? The Jewish uh, tradition up to this point uh, took Leviticus 19.18 to mean literally your neighbor. 
Love your neighbor. So if someone isn't your physical neighbor, you don't really have to love them. And, and, and they would expand it up to the point of Jewish person. But if you're a pagan, if you're from somewhere else, if you're our enemy, we don't have to love you. In fact, we have permission to hate you because Jesus only told us to love our neighbor. And so when Jesus teaches the same story in another gospel account, he leads into this whole deal about who is my neighbor, if you remember that, and he redefines what the word neighbor means. He expands it to say, yeah, it means your neighbor, but it also means everybody. It means your enemy, your political enemy, your theological enemy, real or imagined, that person that you just don't like. It, it, it means the refugee or the stranger, the foreigner. In other words, it means everybody. It means all people. And I just want to say that, that that doesn't sound like shocking to you like it probably would have in the first century. They were shocked by that. For us, we live in a culture that talks about love for, you, love for humanity like crazy. I mean, more than any other culture that's ever existed that I'm aware of, we have a value for loving all people, do we not? Now, you wouldn't know it if you spent 20 seconds on Facebook. You would think, we have a value for outrage and hatred. But actually, we talk a lot about love for all people. Here's the problem. Yes, neighbor means all people, but let's also remember that when Jesus says love your neighbor, it also still means your neighbor, right? You have a neighbor, person that lives to your right or left or across the street, love them. It means them too. Yeah, it means everybody, but we can sometimes use everybody as an excuse to love nobody with an actual face. Jesus is saying, no, actually treat one another the way you want to be treated, whoever that may be. I love the words of Frederick Dale Bruner. He says, people can love the world, the third world, or the poor very easily until they meet obnoxious representatives. The normal way believers love the world is through loving attention to each member of that world as each passes by on a typical day. We love the whole whom we cannot reach through the part that we can. The part of the human race given to each one daily is the disciples' main way to love the world. So who do you meet? Who do you encounter? Your spouse, your roommate, coworkers, friends, your physical neighbor? Treat them the way you want to be treated because when you really love God from an integrated whole self way with heart, soul, mind, strength, it necessarily leads to loving action towards other people. This is just the way it works. So here, here, here's Jesus' summary. The scribe comes up and he says, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Like if you could just name one, what's the most important? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So we can go to lunch now. We've got it. Like we know what to do and we can go to lunch and just chill for the rest of the day. No, this leads to the last thing, which is the great commandment exposes our need for Jesus. If you're anything like me, you're listening to all of this and you're thinking, love God with my whole heart. Yeah, but my desires are out of whack. My loves are disordered. I love God some days, but other days I love me. And that Disney mantra of follow your heart hasn't led us to the place of thriving and flourishing. It's actually led us to sin and death. Love God with my mind? Man, I go hours, days without thinking about God. Some of you are like, this is the first I've thought about God all week. It's because I'm in church. And sometimes when we think about God, we think about things that are untrue and ugly 
and things that don't match his character that we put on him that are not right. Love God with our soul. He was the point. He was why we were made. But man, we live for ourselves. Our end, our purpose is for my own personal pleasure and happiness. Love God with our strength. We don't use our effort and our habit and our good works for him. We use them for ourselves, to honor and love ourselves. This command is a real command, but this command exposes our deep need for Jesus. But friends, I have really good news. Because yes, this is the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment in the Bible is human love for God. That's the greatest commandment, but it is not the greatest truth. The greatest truth is not human love for God. The greatest truth is God's love for humans. And that leads me to this from 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us. That's the point. Not that we loved God. That's the greatest commandment. But the greatest truth is that when we were unlovable, when we were ugly in our sin, when we were rebellious, when we had a heart bent, he loved us anyway. And he sent Jesus to be the wrath bearer, the the substitutionary atonement, the one who stood in our place so that his life would be counted as mine, so that his death would be counted as mine, so that his resurrection would be counted as mine. And now the greatest truth is that Jesus has actually fulfilled this greatest commandment in all the ways that you and I failed to. Did Jesus love the Father with his whole heart? Yes. His communion with the Father was continual when ours is fickle. Did Did Jesus love the Father with his mind? Yes, he lived on the word of God as daily bread. He taught it, he studied it, he treasured it, he quoted it all the time. Did Jesus love the Father with his soul? Yes, the the core essence of who Jesus was, his whole life was to do the will of the one who sent him. Did Jesus love the Father with his strength? Yes, we see him in his whole life filled with obedient action to the Father, healing the sick, taking food to the poor. We see Jesus taking people who are dead in sin and bringing them back to life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, physically offering his life in our place. Jesus used his strength to love the Father. Did Jesus love his neighbor as himself? Yes, you could actually argue that Jesus loved his neighbor more than he loved himself. Not that he did in reality, but the way that he treated other people. He actually died in our place because he did not want to to die in separation and death from the Father. He loved us to the point of death and even on the cross uttering words like, forgive them for they know not what they do. He treated us the way that he would want to be treated when we didn't deserve it. Friends, the gospel gives us the power to obey the great commandment. That's a real command. God actually expects you to do this, but he's not just demanding it. The gospel gives you the power to obey. And in every place that you fail, the gospel gives you forgiveness for your failures. This is profoundly good news for Christians. Now, because of Jesus, we are truly set free to love God and love neighbor as ourselves in ways that no one else was able to do before Jesus. So where do we go from here? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the most important, essential thing. Love the God who loves you. Love your neighbor as yourself. The person that you meet and encounter and relate to, love them as yourself. There's a lot of things out there that matter, 
There are a lot of things that out there that I know that you're like, I want to learn this or I want to get better at this or I want to, all those things are important. This is the most important. Let all those other things take a back seat for just a minute minute, and let's build our lives around loving God and loving people. It's all summarized in that. That's the heart of the law. That's what God is after. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. You've not yet repented of sin, placed faith in Jesus. The way this story ends, I think, is an invitation to you. Notice how it ends, verse 32. And the scribe said to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and, and sacrifices. He's like, you're right. He, he assents to the truth, but look at what Jesus says. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I just want to end with this. There's a difference between cognitive assent and genuine love and trust. And Jesus isn't slamming the scribe. He's just saying, you're close. You're really close to the kingdom of God. And I want to say to some of you, you've been here for weeks or months, maybe you've been around for years, you're so close. You're so close, friends. There's a difference between believing the right stuff in your head having cognitive assent to the truth and having true, genuine love for God and trust in what he's done for you. And I just want to invite you, if you have not yet crossed the line of genuine trust, today is an invitation to you. You're not far from the kingdom and Jesus wants you in.